The great state of Rhode Island is well known for its incredible beauty, its delectable seafood, and as the home of the acclaimed horror and sci-fi writer H.P. Lovecraft. However, like any state, it also hosts a seedy underbelly of crime. According to FBI statistics, in 2016, Rhode Island had the highest murder rate in the New England region of the US. In today's episode of Cold Case Detective, we'll be looking at two unsolved cases from Rhode Island. Camilla Lowell Lyman. Camilla, or Cam Lyman, was born September 4th, 1932, in Westwood, Massachusetts, to Arthur T. Lyman and his wife. The couple were old money Boston aristocrats who had accumulated an excessive amount of wealth via cotton mills and the cotton trade, and Arthur had spent considerable time in public service. Growing up, Cam, who later began to identify as a male, was particularly close to his father, as he shared his love for show dogs. Cam was noted to be independent and never dated or married during his lifetime, but was seen as intelligent and talented. He spent his life breeding champion show dogs. In particular, he enjoyed breeding Clumber Spaniels and Bernese Mountain Dogs, as these were his two favorite breeds. When his father died in 1968 from lung cancer, followed closely by his mother in 1973, Cam began to grow more and more reclusive and eccentric. He moved to Rhode Island sometime after the death of his mother, and around 1978 began identifying as a man, shortening the name Camilla to just Cam. Transforming his appearance via steroids and a change in wardrobe, by 1985 Cam had the standard stereotypical appearance of a man, complete with a moustache. Around this time, he began to associate with a dog handler named George O'Neill, whom Cam trusted to take care of his 40-acre home and his dogs. At the time, Cam lived with nearly 60 canine friends. George made sure to feed and care for them, and he also showed the dogs at events. However, it wasn't just that Cam was a loner, or that he had little contact with his family, that made him appear bizarre and unconventional. He also went around with a briefcase filled with expensive jewellery worth thousands of dollars, and he took thousands of dollars in cash with him just to go to the shops. Two years later, in December of 1987, Cam's family did not receive their usual Christmas card from him. They found this odd, and began to look into his lack of correspondence. That's when they noticed they hadn't seen or heard from Cam in months. Checks that had been sent to Cam were being endorsed with a Rhode Island account number instead of his signature. The family notified authorities of Cam's disappearance. They also contacted the law firm in charge of his trust, and a private investigator named Charles Allen was hired and sent to investigate the matter. Charles uncovered that Cam's caretaker and sole confidant, George O'Neill, had been depositing the 54-year-old's trust fund checks into his own account, and also that he held Cam's power of attorney and stood to inherit $2.5 million from Cam's estate. Authorities questioned O'Neill in regards to Cam's disappearance and were told that, earlier that summer, the pair had fought over the phone about the dogs and that O'Neill's employer had hung up on him. The next day, when O'Neill went over to the home, he found the phone ripped out of the wall and the doors wide open. O'Neill claimed that he believed Cam had gone to Europe to get sexual reassignment surgery, 
However, he could not provide any proof of this. He also couldn't explain why, for six months, he had failed to report Cam as a missing person. Not only this, but O'Neill then refused to allow law enforcement to search the property. He continued to show Cam's dogs as his own, and he somehow continued to keep cashing Cam's checks. Reportedly, much of Cam's cash had dwindled. Between three and five million of it was gone. Meanwhile, PI Charles Allen did not believe that Cam had gone for the operation because the 54-year-old man was afraid of going to the dentists and doctors. His sister, Mary, added that she didn't believe he would leave his faithful, beloved dogs behind. Cam was declared dead in absentia in 1995. Then in 1997, a decade after his disappearance, Cam's body was found in the septic tank of his property in Hopkinton, Rhode Island. The new owners of the house had found the remains when they noticed a strange smell emanating from the sewer. In 1998, the medical examiner confirmed that the remains were Cam's by using his dental records. It was determined that he'd been killed around the time that he went missing. In 2003, George O'Neill was indicted for embezzling $15,000 from Cam's estate. He was sentenced to one year of probation and ordered to pay $450 in court costs. He died in 2011 without providing any further information on Cam's death. The family challenged O'Neill's claim to Cam's fortune, and in the end, he ended up with the house worth $40,000, while the Lyman family received everything else. Many people suspect that George O'Neill was involved in the death of his employer, while others have proposed the theory that someone who had heard about Cam living alone with an abundance of cash and jewels had attempted a robbery that had gone wrong. If this was the case, however, why would they bother disposing of the body? In June of 1999, the show Unsolved Mysteries aired a segment about Cam's disappearance and tragic end. Reportedly, after it aired, investigators received several new leads. Charles Allen was still on the case at the time and told the press that the new information, quote, could be a break in the case. However, it's unknown what exactly this information was, and since then, no one has ever been charged in relation to Cam's homicide. Doreen Picard in 1982, 22-year-old Doreen Picard and 27-year-old Susan Laferte lived in the same apartment complex in Woonsocket. Doreen was studying childhood development in university and lived alone in one of the upstairs apartments. Meanwhile, Susan was a housewife and member of the local neighborhood watch. She and her husband Ernie were the landlords of the apartment building and had two children together. On February 19th, 1982, Doreen began packing up her belongings as she was due to move out of her apartment. Downstairs, Susan had lunch with her sister Carol in her home. At around 1.30 p.m., two friends of Susan's arrived. While Carol recognized one of the men who turned up at the door, she did not know the other. Susan told Carol that the men planned to look at the puppies she was selling. She talked to them for a few minutes and then they left. At 1.45 p.m., Carol left the apartment too. Sometime after this, both Doreen and Susan were downstairs in the basement doing laundry when an unidentified man entered the basement and began to attack both women with a 28-inch lead pipe. 
At 3.20pm, another tenant of the complex found Susan's three-year-old daughter, Nicole, in the hallway. She'd been locked out of her home. When the tenant asked where her mother was, Nicole told him that she was in the basement, which is when the two bodies of Susan and Doreen were discovered. Tragically, Doreen Picard passed away from the injuries she had sustained. She had apparently been strangled with her own sweatshirts, leading many to believe that she was the target of the attack. Susan, on the other hand, suffered a severe head injury and went into surgery for two hours. She fell into a coma afterwards. Fearing for her safety, police guarded Susan's room around the clock. 30 days later, Susan awoke. She had no memory of the attack or the person who had attacked her. The last day that she remembered was December 31st, 1981. Three-year-old Nicole was the only one who could describe her mother's assailant. She told her grandmother that she'd let him into the building, thinking he was a friend of her mother's. She said she saw him before he left, and that he had a lead pipe and a bloody white handkerchief in his pocket. However, due to Nicole's young age, her testimony could not be used. She described the man as having a moustache, a hat with a visor, wearing jeans and trainers, and mentioned that he was taller than her father. It is possible that this description is inaccurate, given Nicole's young age at the time. The lead pipe was found in the building four days later. Law enforcement believed that the perpetrator had chosen his victim based on newspaper ads. Possibly he saw that Doreen's apartment was for rent, or that Susan was selling puppies. But they could not determine whether or not the women knew their attacker, or whether he was a stranger. While the police hunted for clues, Doreen's parents conducted their own informal investigation. They received several anonymous calls during the course of their inquiry, telling them to stop digging for information. The caller threatened to hurt the Picard's family, and to burn down Mr. Picard's repair shop. Nonetheless, the family continued to search for answers, although, in the end, answers eluded them. Almost a decade later, in June of 1991, 38-year-old Raymond D. Tempest Jr. was arrested and charged with the slaying of Doreen Picard. He could not be charged with the attack on Susan since the statute of limitations had run out. Tempest was the son of the chief inspector of the Woundsocket Police Department, and also had a brother, who was a lieutenant in the force. Investigators learned that Tempest had been having an affair with Susan around the time of the attack. He was one of the two men who had visited her apartment earlier that day in regards to the puppies being sold. According to the detectives on the case, Tempest had been a suspect from the start, but they didn't have any evidence to back up their suspicions. However, an episode of Unsolved Mysteries in May of 1988, which featured the case, had brought forward several witnesses. These four witnesses claimed that Tempest had bragged about and confessed to the crime. He also reportedly threatened some of them, telling them not to tell anyone, or he'd hurt them. He'd also allegedly claimed that his connections in the police department would mean that he would get away with it. A car, seen at the crime scene, also resembled one that Tempest's brother-in-law owned. The prosecution's witnesses added that he was seen with fresh bites and scratch marks on his wrists after the attack, and that he asked for alibis during the time of the slaying. The police believed that the pair got into an argument that turned violent, and that Doreen had walked in and tried to help, resulting in her death. They also believed that Tempest's brother, Gordon, 
had helped conceal the crime. In April of 1992, Tempest was convicted of second degree murder and sentenced to 85 years in prison. His brother Gordon was convicted of perjury. Prosecutors also claimed that the Tempest family had helped intimidate witnesses into not coming forward. In 2014, the Innocence Project caught wind of the case when Tempest reached out seeking help to clear his name. The Innocence Project believed that he had been arrested and convicted as a result of coercion of witnesses by corrupt policemen and overzealous prosecutors. Tempest believed that the Woundsocket Police Department knew who was really behind the crimes, but had covered it up and set him as the foreman. According to Tempest, the real perpetrator was a man named Donald DeGessy, who died in 2011. He's not the only one who thinks so. Susan's daughter, Nicole, pointed out DeGessy as her mother's attacker when they attended Doreen's funeral. Reportedly, after Susan woke from her coma, she identified DeGessy, but later said she couldn't remember who her attacker was. That same year, Tempest's 2014 request for help clearing his name via DNA testing was not accepted by the courts. The testing was to be carried out on the hairs found on Doreen's hand. They have since been confirmed as not coming from Tempest. However, investigators have argued that they could have come from the laundry room floor. In 2015, Tempest's conviction was vacated by a judge based on the alleged misconduct and unreliability of witnesses brought forward. Today, many people believe that Tempest was set up. It's been pointed out that Nicole had told her family about Donald, but that she had not reacted in any way to seeing Tempest, despite the fact that she saw him several times after her mother's attack. It's also been said that Degesi had made several incriminating statements to Susan's sister-in-law, and that a woman, who'd received a phone call in which an anonymous person confessed to the case, identified the man's voice as Degesi's. Also, in 1987, Gordon Tempest was involved in a bust and arrested a known criminal named Stanley Isra. Isra was coincidentally the brother of one of the investigators on Susan and Doreen's case, giving them a possible motive to frame Raymond Tempest in revenge. The officer claimed that his informant had led him to Raymond Tempest's door, but it's been argued that the investigator's informant was actually Isra. Yet another flaw in the prosecution's case was that one of the witnesses constantly contradicted her own statements, including saying that Tempest had brought a puppy home to his children and that they were really excited about it, except that the witness did not even know the family. Also, Tempest had not kept the puppy, he had given it to a friend who'd gone to Susan's with him. This witness also claimed that Gordon had hidden the pipe to cover up for his brother, but she previously claimed that Gordon had no knowledge of the crime. The four witnesses brought in for the prosecution were noted to have been vulnerable due to their involvement with drugs, drug trafficking, and sex work. In 2017, the state planned to retry Tempest, but in December of that year, he entered an Alford plea, which meant that he maintained his innocence, but agreed that there was enough evidence to lead to a conviction. He was released from prison as a result, and the case is considered closed but many feel that the real killer of Doreen Picard has escaped unpunished. And there you have the facts. Please leave a comment down below with your own theories and speculations, and remember to like this video and subscribe to support the channel.
If you're still hungry for true crime content, you can check out the Cold Case Detective podcast by following the link below. Thank you for watching. Stay alert, stay safe, and I'll see you next time.